Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Monday, March 22nd, we're studying Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. Jesus' teaching in the temple, his teaching about the temple, has come to an end, and events begin to move as he has foretold toward the fulfillment of all things in his death and his resurrection, beginning now with his anointing for burial. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Jeremiah Johnson. Pastor Johnson serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Thanks. Always good to be here. As we get started this morning, let's talk a little context. This seems to be a pretty key turning point in Mark's gospel. Jesus transitions from the teaching that he's been giving to now the events of Holy Week as we typically think about them from what we observe each year in the the church calendar. Give us some context as we get started this morning, Pastor Johnson. Right. That's uh, that's so important. So, um, Jesus, really, he front loads a lot of the explanation of what's going on in the you know earlier part of Holy Week, and so we're we are um, I believe on Wednesday of of Holy Week. So Jesus, of course, is already he's entered into Jerusalem, and uh, and of course you you remember that uh, the people hail him as the one who comes in the name of the Lord, and so they kind of get some of it right. But then when they're asked further, um, you know they don't they don't really know who Jesus is, and so. Um, but but clearly, and this is this plays um, an important role in our our lesson today. Um, the crowds do have some affinity for him. That's that much is clear because later on we're going to see how the, the religious leaders are. They're very well aware of this, and they play their political cards right. They don't want to uh, create a fuss when they're when they're planning on getting rid of Jesus. Um, so Jesus has already cleared the temple, and he's done a lot of the teaching in in the temple, which of course includes a lot of his comments about um, uh, about well, not only his second coming, but um, but wrapped in along with that is a lot of commentary really about his you know what he's doing there now. Um, you know, the crucifixion really is um, the final day come early. It's where judgment ultimately gets. Um, uh, you know, gets meted out, but instead of on us, it's on on him. And so we'll want to touch on that later on. Um, but here's what's key, is that Jesus is, is really teaching them to d- rightly discern the time that they are in. And the time is defined by his passion, his death, and ultimately his resurrection. Um, so he's wrapped up, up with all that. And um, he is in. I guess I'm just going to go. If you don't mind, I'm just going to. I'll go seamlessly right into the uh, into the text. Then let me um, let me comment real quick on what you're saying oh, about, sure. about discerning the time. We mm-hmm. talked about in the previous text the last several verses there of Mark 13, where Jesus says concerning that day or that hour, over and over again, he says, "Stay awake." Stay awake, stay awake. That's the language that Jesus has used. And I think what you're saying about discerning the time, the disciples, 
as, as we will see in this text, don't really discern the time or to use that same language. They're not really staying awake, which I, I right. think comes to and just thinking ahead here in Mark 14, it, it becomes quite literal when Jesus is there praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. They actually do fall asleep on him. Right. They, they don't. They, they've missed, and this is so true throughout Mark's gospel, of course, but they've missed what Jesus has been saying in chapter 13. It's going to come to fruition here in, in chapter 14. And yet throughout it all, I think the thing that I would emphasize through the passion is that you see Jesus be the faithful one that he's proved himself to be already. Right. Yeah. No matter how much the uh, disciples have really missed the boat. <laughs> so we can, yeah, we can chat more about that later, but uh, um so, yeah, but I'll have a well, and then oh, ahead, you said, ahead. well, with the with the context, then just to kind of jump into the text, let me just read the first two verses because that right. really does set the context for us. So this is right. Mark fourteen verses one and two. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So there in verse one, particularly, Mark gives us the context. It's two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Why is that context so important? Right. And it's kind of unnecessary because we know that it's coming. I mean, we, we've already had hints in the previous chapters, but I think he he re-accentuates it so that we, you know, we can see clearly that uh, the Jesus is coming as the fulfillment of, you know, just like John the Baptist hailed him, you know, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Um, and so, you know, Lamb of God, of course, uh, you know, has an obvious sacrificial connotation to it. And what what sacrifice is more famous than the Passover lamb itself? Um, just to dip our toes in the Old Testament a little bit, um, it struck me when when I was I was I, um, at our church, we've been preaching through the Psalms uh, during our Wednesday services uh, for the last. We have a, a service every Wednesday, and um, and we've made it through the entire book of Psalms uh, like one and a half times. And it finally dawned on me after we preached through the the whole book, um, the the event, the historical event that comes up over and over and over again is, of course, the Exodus, of of which the Passover is a key central part of. Um, but this is the simple thought that struck me. The Exodus is the the quintessential defining act of redemption in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Um, and if if that's the case, which I just uh you know just take my word for it, <laughs> or, or read all the Psalms, you know you'll you'll figure it out for yourself. If that's like the you know the gold standard, so to speak, for for God's act of deliverance, and and the Passover is part of that, then. Um, then this should perk up all of our ears that in other words, when we hear two days before the Passover, we should have all these connotations of this magnificent act of deliverance, all kind of ringing in our head. In other words, this is not just a, well, it happened on the 3rd of May. Uh, this isn't a benign kind of, um, temporal marker. It's not just telling us the day of the week that it happened on. There is, there, there's, there's freight to this. And the freight is simply this. Um, in the Passover, the big thing is God saves and he does it by sacrificing something else in their place. The Passover lamb dies so that they can live and they can be delivered. 
And I mean, that's exactly what we should be waiting for ourselves. I mean, that's, that's, that's what everything is being set up here. And, and on top of that, think about this, you know, one of the key things about the Passover, of course, you can't have a Passover without the lamb dying. And here we're going to get in a little bit, this woman anointing Jesus for his death. Mm. <laughs> I think we should not miss out on that little point. Mm. Yeah, there, there's really so much that we could we could do a whole episode on just the Passover itself to to give us all that flavor that's needed here. You're exactly right when it comes to the Psalms. And I would say even the whole Old Testament, that the Exodus is the event of salvation for God's people, which, and, and as you were talking, you know, I mean, you can think through some of the parts of say the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah talks about another Exodus in some of the ways that he talks about the return from exile. He uses that language of the Exodus. And of course they do come back from exile, but I mean, even, even the way that it's described in the scriptures, there's a bit of a, it's not as fulfilling as you thought it was going to be, I think. Right, right. You, you know, I mean, they, there's that whole it thing with the... It always leaves you wanting something more, That's it? right. That's right. And so when, when you get to this part and you're in Mark 14 and here it is, it's the Passover and it's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I think all of those passages are coming to mind. And, and then too, with the way that Luke talks about the transfiguration and how Jesus right. is there with Moses and Elijah talking about his exodus. Uh, exodus, right? right? I mean, this is, it's all coming together right here. Up. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, no, 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 go ahead. You just beat me to it. That's all. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just like you're saying, all of all of those things are coming together, that, that these are the events that the entirety of the scriptures has been pointing toward up to this moment. This this is it. it things are about to be fulfilled. And, and as you said, this judgment day that Jesus has talked about in the previous chapter, it's going to come upon him early. And, and even as we were talking about, you know, chapter 13 and, and thinking of what exactly is Jesus talking about here and when is he talking about, we, we did say, you know, some of the things that he describes, for example, the sun being darkened, these things happen on the day of his crucifixion. All, all of that is, I mean, this is just in these opening words of Mark 14, Mark's giving us this signal. It's about to happen. Y'all pay attention. Right, right. Yeah, the day is surely drawing near. So <laughs> that's right. So in, in the in the midst of that, Mark begins by starting to remind us of the chief priests and the scribes and right. what their plan is in the midst of this Passover feast of unleavened bread. Let's talk a little bit about their role in the narrative. Right. Yeah, they've been important since the very beginning. I mean, in many ways, they've been sort of the foil. Uh, to Jesus from the days of John the Baptist at the very beginning, which in the book of Mark, of course, is right away. Um, and and so in this way, what we've had spelled out for us is really a, a tale of two plans. Um, there's essentially the plan of, of Jesus and the Father, which is really one and the same plan. And then there's sort of the plans of, you might say, the darkness. Um, now, I think you could probably argue that it's a little bit more nuanced than that, but, um, but the religious leaders have, they have, um, their opposition to Jesus has only been growing since the beginning. Um, and, uh, and now it's kind of come, you know, it's, it's burst out into the open now where, you know, it's not just this guy is really annoying or, you know, Hey, we really ought to do something about him. No, now he needs to, he needs to die. He needs to die. Um, and, and so, and, but ironically, Jesus agrees, <laughs> he does need to die. And so in some ways it's, ex it's exactly the same plan, um, 
Uh, but it's at the same time a completely different plan. In other words, what's the goal in, in all of it? Well, what it will accomplish, they think they're going to get rid of Jesus by killing him, and Jesus, by dying, knows that he's actually going to be able to save them. And so, you know, it's it's so ironic that they, they both sort of end up you know, everything ends up getting kind of co-opted by the Father's will, even when people aren't aware of it. Um, so the, one of the big themes that we're going to see here, at least with the disciples, we can kind of see almost mirrored beforehand with the religious leaders, and that is they're blind. Um, their own unbelief about who Jesus is blinds them to see the truth that's, that's straight in front of them. Um and, uh, and really what Jesus has actually come here to do. So one more quick comment um, on the on the religious leaders. It, it says, I think it's really interesting how it says that they were, um, uh, lest there be an uproar from the people. So, I mean, so they're really worried about what the people are all going to think. And this goes back to my comment earlier about um, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. The people, even if they don't have it all theologically right, they do, they do acknowledge him as, someone worth praise and somebody who has some kind of, um, you know, they're a fan. I, you know, clearly their, their theological understanding of him is deficient, but they, um, they clearly are not, <laughs> you know, they are, they are fearing um, these people when really they should actually be fearing God and the one who's actually standing right in front of them. It, um, you know, you know, I mean, it, it strikes me as just being odd that they're they're not worried about the fifth commandment. They're not worrying about you know breaking the law of God. Um, you know, I would think that the people's piety should have given them some pause about all of this to say, well, you know, hey, they all really think he's a great guy. Maybe we should at least look into this a little bit more. But they don't. Their their unbelief has blinded them. To your first point about the the two plans yet being one plan that that Jesus is going to die, I think that's a, a crucial thing to recognize here at the beginning. Again, of what we would often think about of the events of Holy Week, you know what we're what we're reading here. This is where the text usually starts when you think about the reading of Jesus' Passion. So, <laughs> knowing that from the outset, I think is really important. And Jesus has shown us this all along that He knows what's going to happen to Him. He's told his disciples on several occasions that he is going to Jerusalem to be handed over to suffer to die and to rise and and that's his purpose and so he i mean he goes willingly he goes gladly he goes I don't know if I can say it this way in charge, he is mm-hmm. directing the events of this week when things seem out of control He's in control. Ultimately, his father is in control. He's following his father's will. This isn't the events of Holy Week are not Jesus lost it or something like that. This is exactly what he had in mind. And he he takes what is intended for evil and turns it into the ultimate good. I mean, I think of those those words that Joseph says at the end of Genesis, like this is the fulfillment of those words of Joseph. Right. You know, I heard somebody say once um, you know that uh, I'm not sure they were even even Christian. They said Jesus died as a martyr for his cause, and it didn't strike me at the time when I heard it how just how wrong-minded it was. But that's exactly the opposite of what we see here. Jesus doesn't die as a martyr. Like you know, we should be really sorry for him because oh well, you know they um, 
you know, he kind of got the raw end of a deal and, you know, and some people, uh, you know, their political machinations ended up with him nailed on the cross. What a sad thing, you know, actually on the contrary, he knows exactly what he's getting into. I mean, he prays that in the, uh, in the garden of Gethsemane, you know, Lord, he, even though he says, he says, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but he always he uh, he acquiesces to the father's will. He knows what's going on. And so he doesn't just he's not a victim of circumstance. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Then to your second point about the religious leaders and their fear of the people, I think that's a, an excellent point that I, I think maybe to connect it earlier to Mark's gospel, they haven't learned their lesson that Jesus tried to teach (laughs) them earlier. You know, he asked them that question about the authority of John the Baptist and did it come from heaven or did it come from man? And part of the reason they refuse to answer is because they're afraid of the people. And and apparently they they haven't learned anything by chapter 14. And I mean, I think at least this is the way that I I think about it. What's maybe most frustrating about them as a a character within the narrative is that they won't come out and, and stand for something, you know? I mean, if, if they really believe that Jesus is this terrible threat that they believe he is, if they really think he's a false teacher and they actually care about the people, shouldn't they come out and say, Jesus is a false teacher, Mark and avoid him. You know, I mean, it's like you see their lukewarmness through it and, and it just is a, I'm reminded of what Jesus says in John chapter three, how those who who love the darkness, they stay in the darkness. They don't want to come in the darkness. And that's, that's the picture that you have of these chief priests, these, these scribes is that they, on the one hand, they seem to know that, that Jesus, like there's something about Jesus, but they just, they hate him. And it becomes an irrational, uh, a stealthy kind of thing that, that just, uh, it grows in this really ugly way. Right. Yeah, no, I really like the point you you bring up in it that slipped my mind that Jesus was just in the temple and he essentially gave them the opportunity. He said, in, in, in when they when they refuse, when they essentially, you know, fear the people and want to kind of weasel out of the question, he says, "Fine, then I won't tell you by what authority that I do these things either." Because if he had said, I mean, they didn't have ears to hear at the time, but I mean, you know, what we we clearly know, uh, like from Matthew twenty eight, is it's you know, Jesus explicitly not only he knows and states clearly that his father um, is the one who's actually given him uh, him authority. You know, all heaven, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Um, now, of course, that's after the resurrection, but still, it's uh, you know, his authority still comes from the Father in this, and they will just have they do not have ears to hear. Now, this opposition to Jesus begins our text from Mark 14. It's also going to end our text from Mark 14 as Jesus, or excuse me, as Mark will remind us about Judas Iscariot and his agreeal to betray Jesus. And in the middle of that, we get this wonderful account of a woman who anoints Jesus. So I'll go ahead and read the rest of the text for us. Again, we're in Mark chapter 14, now picking up at verse 3. And while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. 
She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. That's the rest of the text for today. We're looking again at Mark 14, verses 1 through 11. Pastor Johnson, the main account that we've got in our text is this anointing of Jesus at Bethany. The text starts, Mark gives us some of the details of the scene. He's at Bethany, he's in the house of Simon the leper, they're eating, and then here comes this woman, this unnamed woman with an alabaster flask of ointment. Just take us into some of those those details and why they're important. Right. A few things you probably want to remember is that, so he's he's outside of Jerusalem again. Um, Bethany is a uh, is an easy walk. I think it's a Sabbath day walk from uh, from Jerusalem. Uh, Bethany and Bethphagia are, are these two pair tw- uh, towns. I think they're less than a kilometer away. They're real close. And um, now we're not given a lot of details. We don't really know. Nobody really knows who Simon the leper is. Um, uh, we are given an indication of who the woman probably is from the book of John, but that's not that's not important here in, uh, in Mark. And so it's easy to get distracted with a lot of these other details. But what we do know is is clearly what the text tells us so that, number one, this is it's a it's a flask of ointment and it's it's very expensive. I mean that's all that's obviously going to come into play when they say, well, hey, uh, you know this was a big waste. That's what's really uh, it says. Why was the ointment wasted like that? And it, that uh, that should really prompt us to say, well, um, well, if that's what waste was, how should it have been? How should it have been used? But I think what we really need to look to is. Um, is when Jesus, um, when Jesus actually says later on here, he says, "You will not always have me," because um, what that does, I, mean, I might be getting a little ahead of myself here, but he, uh, Jesus, is saying, "Listen, there, a time is is coming where where you're not going to actually have me." He's, you know, if this wasn't already clear enough, he said this, and then he goes on. Um, he says she's anointed my body beforehand for burial, and so this is this has become um, like a uh, an enactment of a passion prediction. You know, before Jesus has predicted it audibly to them, but now here's an act that is showing this is what's going to happen. He's going to die, and he's going to be buried, and so it's a confession in a way. And in so think about this in contrast, like with or, or in. Um, in comparison with the other passion predictions. Remember the very first one, Jesus says to Peter, and what's Peter's response? Oh, no, that can't happen to you, Jesus. No way. You know, God forbid, he literally says. Um, And so once again, there's this, you might think of this as another passion prediction. And how do the disciples react? Kind of in the same way. You know, they, they don't, they don't understand. They don't believe rightly that, um, or, or like I tried to put it earlier, they aren't discerning the time um, because you notice that um, ah, there, there's so many things to unwind here. H- how long do we have till the break? Yeah, three and a half minutes. <laughs> okay, let's let's just start with this. Um, note that the disciples um, they say, "Well, hey, 
Uh, what would we have done with this? We would have sold it and given it to the poor. You could have 300 denarii is like, this is, this is probably several tens of thousands of dollars worth of ointment. I mean, it's, it's really expensive. There's no doubt about it. And you probably, you could have fed, you know, quite a few people for quite a few weeks on the, on this money. I, I don't, I, there's no reason given us to doubt the disciples, either sincerity or accuracy on that regard, but that's not the point. And nor is the point that, hey, we shouldn't take care of the poor. Um, that's not the point either. The point is fundamentally that the disciples are still kind of not recognizing what time it is. In other words, here Jesus, he's coming to Jerusalem, just like he said. He's going to, uh, to go and suffer and die, just like he said. And they still are not realizing that the hour is already so late. They're almost acting like, like this was just normal time because normally this is what they would do. They would sell this thing and they would give it to the poor. Um, but the time is not normal. Um, they, uh, the time is the time for Christ to actually suffer and die. And that I think is really the fundamental misunderstanding that they have. Um, they, uh, they, they still aren't getting it. Uh, they don't see that this is the central thing that Jesus has come to do. And that that time is now upon them. I, I think that, that that insight about that this is not normal time, I think that ties into what we were saying earlier about the setting for for this event that Mark gives us about it being the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. From some of the reading that I did, giving to the poor was something that would have been important during a typical celebration of the Passover. Again, it was a week-long feast for the people of Israel, and taking care of the poor would have been something that you would have normally done. But this isn't a normal Passover. This is the Passover, capital T, capital P there, that Jesus right. has come to accomplish. And and so that that fact that this is the Passover, the fulfillment of all the things that God has been doing up to this moment, everything he's spoken in the Old Testament has been leading to this, that's, that's what they've missed. They've missed the time. They haven't discerned it. They're to use that language from Mark 13, they're falling asleep. They're not seeing the reality. And yet we have a woman here who does see that reality. And it is her action that Jesus will use right. to continue to teach. And we can pick up more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFU. Have Pastor Jeremiah Johnson looking at Mark 14 with us. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Monday, March 22nd. We're studying Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. We have Pastor Jeremiah Johnson with us. He serves at Glory of Christ Lutheran Church in Plymouth, Minnesota. Pastor Johnson, prior to the break, we were 
introducing this main scene of the woman who anoints Jesus. It's one event. There are two interpretations given. One is given by the crowds, the disciples among them, who suggest that this ointment was so expensive it could have been sold. The other interpretation, which is the one we should go with, is the interpretation given by Jesus. And, and as we were introducing that scene in those two interpretations, one of the things we're talking about is this woman and the confession that she's been making. You, you said the disciples have missed what Jesus has been teaching concerning his passion that he's told them about. But apparently here, this woman, she's understood it, at least to some degree, and she's confessing by this action that she she does believe that what Jesus is going to do, he, he is in fact going to do, It's and it's important. Uh, take us into to that confession she's making further. Right. Yeah, like you said, you <laughs> when uh, Jesus gives an explanation, you always go with Jesus, right? But in, in, he actually calls it a good or a beautiful thing that she's done. And so, you know, it's, it's very clear, you know, who's got the right on this. Now, no, I think we probably should be a little bit more cautious, but I mean, this is maybe more my character that um, we don't know exactly how much she understands. But what we do have is Jesus, you know, his explanation of it, that that it is indeed done for you know, his, his burial. Now, I don't know enough about, you know, Jewish funerary rites during the first century. Um, but, uh, but I will say, I know that they did indeed anoint the bodies. And so whether or not she, she like was specifically thinking about this or kind of thinking about it, it does at least confess rightly, um, you know, exactly what Jesus has been saying all along that he's come to suffer and die. And, and that here she's done a beautiful thing by actually, um, how do I put this? Her act of anointing commends his death. It doesn't just, um, uh, it just doesn't say, oh, how sad, um, you know, or it doesn't even try to stop him. Like, you know, much like Peter does, you know, right. He, he pulls out his sword in Gethsemane and, uh, and he, he tries to, to shut the whole thing down. But this woman actually anoints him, which should at least tell us as readers that, uh, Hey, this is actually the way things are supposed to be. This is this is actually for for our blessing. She, Jesus calls it a good thing. Um, so uh, yeah, so we need to pay we need to pay close attention to what, what the woman's doing. I think that what you said about this is how things are supposed to be is is important given what we were talking about earlier about you've got these these two plans that that really are one, but perhaps the the temptation for us like Peter would be to say to Jesus, look, these guys are trying to kill you. Stop them. Do something right. about it. And and here at the beginning of the events that will lead to his crucifixion and death is an event that confesses, no, this is the way that it is supposed to go. And and it is, in fact, a good thing that that is where he's going to go. And, and whether or not you know the woman believes that or she just sort of happened into it, I, I suppose the text doesn't specifically lay out that that she believed this and therefore that's what she did. I, I kind of wonder with the way that Mark has written about some of those more minor characters that do get it 
as the disciples don't, I mean, I'm thinking particularly of somebody like Bartimaeus uh, prior to the entry into Jerusalem right. or, or the other, you know, there's another man who's deaf and mute. You have the, the Syrophoenician woman. Some of these, again, sort of minor characters in Mark that are, are often put side by side where the disciples have just had this moment of brilliant failure. And here comes someone that you wouldn't right. have expected to, quote, get it, who does. I, I kind of wonder if if there's not a, a hint of that, that we place this particular woman in with that same group such that she does get it if you will is she you know she she has heard believed what jesus says and and not only about about jesus crucifixion but i think also about his resurrection dr veltz makes this point in his commentary which i thought was fantastic was that part of what's happening here is, is this woman anoints jesus ahead of time one because you know he dies on friday and there wasn't time to anoint him prior to the sabbath he also mm-hmm. dies a, a criminal's death. He dies a, a, by a crucifixion. And so the anointing rites would not have normally been granted such a thing. But then he, he points out, and I think this is just wonderful, that, that she also knows that if she goes to the tomb with those women on Sunday morning, he's not actually going to be there to anoint because he's going to be raised from the dead. And so she knows she's got to do it here and now, which I think, I mean, again, I suppose the text doesn't specifically put that faith into her into her heart, but man, it, it I really like it. <laughs> well, no, but I actually I wanted to pick that ball up and run with it though, because I think there's actually something in the text that does kind of push us to maybe not explicitly resurrection, but knowing that this will not be the end. Because if you think about it, under you know most people would normally conclude that if you're being anointed for for death first of all that's just a weird thing to do ahead of time i mean can we all agree on that <laughs> and that that you would think that well this is you know this is the end right mm-hmm. because people you know they stay dead <laughs> you know most people stay dead when they die i mean you know jesus is the single solitary exception you know with of course you know the other ones were you know elijah and uh you know and the other people jesus raises but i mean uh you know, if Jesus is going to be die, he's going to die. But then verse nine, which I always thought was kind of a throwaway until you mentioned this, he says, truly, I say to you, whenever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, that what she has done will be told in memory of her. If Jesus just dies and that's the end of it, why would he have included this? I mean, it seems to imply that there is something, you know, that there's going to be more to it than just death because there's lots of people who have died, right? <laughs> and we don't tell their all their stories, but that if the gospel is proclaimed to the whole world on this account, I mean, doesn't that, if you're following me, doesn't that kind yeah. of imply resurrection? That, that the gospel would go on only because Jesus is raised. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're exactly right. That that those words of Jesus that well, good. I wasn't sure I was exactly <laughs> no, right. No, I'm, so I'm glad you're backing me up on this. Yeah, <laughs> no, because I mean, I think within, as you said, within those words of Jesus, that he's talking about the gospel being proclaimed to the whole world already here before he's died. I think that does imply the resurrection, and and I really think that that does tie this text as together as an enactment of those three, what we've often called passion predictions of our Lord previously, where he's, he's said to his disciples so clearly he's going to Jerusalem to suffer, to die and to rise. Those, those have been elements that were in all three of those predictions right. that happened in is chapters eight, nine, and 10 of Mark's gospel. And, and here it is. I mean, the way Jesus explains it, it it's like, this is almost a fourth passion prediction, 
by this woman in action, by the anointing for burial beforehand, she too is is predicting and confessing the truth that Jesus is here in Jerusalem, and it's a good thing for him to suffer, to die, and to right. rise. Yeah. And if you think about it, it would be, I don't totally disagree with the disciples saying that under <laughs> other circumstances, this might be considered a waste, but, um, and this is probably the part where I would, I'd probably have to agree with you, maybe giving her a little bit more credit for faith. I mean, not her credit for the faith, but attributing more faith to her than, than the text might seem to indicate at first, is that here what she's doing is something which would be inappropriate if the time were just regular time. But in this in this particular time, in this time that Jesus has ushered in um, as he goes resolutely to the cross, in this in this other time where where the um, where uh, you know, the, the hinge of the world is impending as he marches towards the cross. This is a perfectly appropriate thing to do that mm. because, because this is not normal time. Mm. So tell us, let's, let's go a little more into the, the objection that is mentioned because at least, you know, the first time you read a text like this, it's not hard to see this perspective. Like, well, well, Jesus, that that's true. This could have been sold and given to the poor. Jesus has even talked about a person selling all his stuff and giving it to the poor previously. There was that rich young man that wouldn't do that. And then of course he wouldn't follow Jesus either, which I think is the key to that. And probably the key to this too, the the matter of following Jesus. But, right. but Jesus has talked about selling things, giving to the poor previously. It, it seems like a noble enough objection Take us further into that perspective and yet more about how it ultimately is is not at the right time or place at this moment. Right, right. I, I think there's probably two different ways we could go with this. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about um, the let's talk a little bit about generosity and kind of how that how this intersects with that topic. Um, so they accuse her literally of wasting the ointment. Um, but with, you know, when it comes to Jesus and what he's come to do, can't we really can ask the question, well, can, can there be waste? Um, because if, you know, if, if we, if we were look, to look at it, I think it's a perfectly fair thing to say that, um, we spend a lot of our lives, especially probably the, the listeners here, um, you know, if you're in corporate America, you own a business. I mean, so much of what we do is financial analysis. You know, is this is selling, you know, this widget or this product, you know, at this profit margin end up going to, uh, you know, is it going to to make it, um, you know, where do where can I find places to cut costs and, um, you know, and make my business more efficient so that I can ultimately make my bottom line, keep my employees employed and actually make money on this endeavor. Right. Um, and so in, there's a place for that, too. That's all fine, um, but this isn't it. <laughs> and so, so when it comes to it, you know, we, we can't look at, um, you know, we can't look at at what this woman has done for Jesus from the from the lens of business analysis. You might say that ultimately the value, if we can put it in this way, the value of what this woman has done, um, simply it can't be measured. In the way that the disciples want to, they want to say, "Okay, it was worth X number of dollars, and we could have we could have fed X number of people with it." Um, 
But whereas Jesus basically kind of like just blows it all out of the water and says, well, it doesn't work like that, right? Um, I'm reminded of of this um, verse in in John 14. And remember, this is when he's in the upper room with the disciples. And he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, and that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And so, you know, so Jesus is actually glorifying the Father Um in in all of this, in that that glory, the you know the Father's own glory, um, that if this is if this is ultimately what this woman is doing is glorifying Christ, magnifying Him and His work, there's sort of no way of doing financial analysis on this. If if, if this makes any sense, I'll have to see if you're if you're following me here. And I think there's, but I think there's applications. I think for the church as well, because there are a great many things. Um, in the church, um, you know, like, uh, you know, that, that we can rightly, you know, kind of do what you might call temporal financial analysis on, you know, I mean, how much, you know, should we change the bulbs over to LEDs and, you know, how much is it going to cost or, you know, we carpet flooring, so on and so forth. That's all really helpful. But when it comes to the gospel and what you might call the, you know, the inputs and the outputs, the, um, in the financial return on investment, um, I think one of the lessons this may teach us is that there's just no place for that in, in the church, not in that way anyway. Um, that in other words, when it comes to, for example, forgiveness, um, you know, do we measure whether or not people are grateful enough for it? No, <laughs> we, we, we absolve. That's what we do. That's what we do in the church. You know, do we, um, do we worry about, um, you know, if all the people are going to, you know, put enough money in the offering plate. I mean, money is real, you know, money's a real thing, of course. I'm not saying it doesn't matter at all, but when it comes to the work of the church, we we don't do things for the sake of the bottom line. And I feel like maybe that's the best way to put this. I feel like the disciples are looking at the bottom line and Jesus just wants to have nothing to do with that at this point. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I've got a number of thoughts going through my mind as you're talking. <laughs> yeah, I, kinda, I laid a lot of stuff on you all at once there. <laughs> well, so I'll see if I can try to put them out there in a slightly organized way, at least. So in one of, one of the things that does come to mind when this, this matter of time comes up is back in Mark chapter two, Jesus disciples. No, let's see. Let me see if I get this right. Yeah, Jesus' disciples were questioned about like why they didn't fast. Jesus says, the why why do John's disciples fast, the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but yours don't? And he says, mm-hmm. How can wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? There will be a time when the fasting will come, but it's not now. And and right. I, I and I wonder if, if if that text, I think that text helps in this case that tremendously. There, there's probably a there is a time and a place to think about financial considerations within the church. Mm-hmm. But this is not that time. The the time when Jesus is about to die, he is here. He's about to do the most important thing he's come to do. And so you pull out all the stops to to confess the importance of that event. And and how can you not use the most expensive ointment that you've got at a moment like this to confess the importance of Jesus death and resurrection. I mean, I think I think a Nicely text said. like that comes into play here. I think other things, you know, it just I'm them there in Mark chapter 2 and and things where Jesus, you know, reverses our expectations. Early in Mark chapter 2, there's that paralytic that's put before him and the first thing Jesus does, it, it's not it's not heal the man 
and make him able to walk, right. but it's forgive his sins. And, right. and I think, you know, again, the, what, what has Jesus come to do? And, and we've talked about that with the miracles in Mark's gospel, that you know, physical healing goes together with the forgiveness of sins. There's a connection there. But, but the forgiveness of sins, if you don't have that, then the physical healing doesn't ultimately matter, which, I mean, I think that ties into some of the things we were saying about death and resurrection going together here. Mm-hmm. Such that, I mean, again, what, what Jesus is saying, what he's doing here, it, it fits with everything else that we've seen from him already, even as, as strange as that may be to our eyes and ears sometimes. I'll, I'll throw it back to you and let you respond. Yeah, no, that, that's, a, that's a, a beautiful way of summarizing it. I'm really glad you brought up the Mark 2 passage. And I think that leads into the, the second observation that uh, I made. I was talking with, no, no, I heard it on an interview somewhere that uh, they were they were speaking very generally about Christianity. And the uh, one of the hosts said, like, well, what good is Christianity if it doesn't end up making our society better? And that just struck me as a really odd statement. Um, and I thought, well, is that I mean, is, is Christianity merely a, uh, a utensil for social good? And I think, well, I mean, on the one hand, Jesus does have a lot to say about feeding the poor. I'm like, we've been saying there is a time for that, Um, you know, as well as, you know, uh, healing the sick and, you know, and cleansing the lepers and doing all that, just like you pointed out. But at the same time, I think, um, and this is what got me thinking about it. You brought up the, the paralytic who his obvious physical need is is to be healed, but then he goes and he forgives his sins first, really reorienting us into thinking about what real needs actually are. And I mean, I think in some ways, once again, I I really like how you've seen this parallel. In the church, um, the church is a place where we have our needs reoriented because it's not like, um, you know, Jesus doesn't want thriving marriages. You know, it's not as if he doesn't want, you know, people to be healed of their cancer. It's not that he doesn't want us helping the poor, but if that's the final kind of be all end all, then we've really missed the point because that's not actually uh, the biggest thing. Um, Jesus comes, he forgives the man's sins first. And I think what you've invited me to see here, and I think I'm seeing this right. And that, um, when, when this woman comes forward with with essentially a large something that is of great value, it use, gets used to anoint Jesus for his death rather than being given to the poor. And so, um, so just to be abundantly clear, I mean, Jesus obviously is not speaking against works of mercy. There's tons of stuff in the old in the New Testament about that, from the, not to matter, mention the old, but that it all, um, you know separated from the cross and the resurrection um it really is it becomes nothing more than a social good and it's not really christianity at all you know maybe maybe this is the the point is that it, it's not so much about the experience well, I shouldn't. The expense is important, but it's it's about more her confession of faith than anything else. And and I get maybe the reason I'm thinking about that is because you know just a couple chapters earlier in Mark chapter 12, Jesus commended that poor widow who only put in two coins. Well, right. why did she do that? And I'm mean, you know because she had faith because she trusted ultimately in the God who promised what Jesus is about to do. This woman. 
she she pours out an expensive jar of of nard this greatly expensive ointment what what's the what's the similarity between those two both of them confess the faith in jesus christ you know to to put it in the words of paul we preach christ crucified and that's what these two two women are doing one in a very expensive way one in a very at least from an earthly perspective, very poor way. And yet it's that same rich confession of faith right. that belongs to Christians. Right. Yeah. We were, we were just talking last night in the, uh, in our high school Bible study about um, why, uh, why do we have the creed? And I mean, I think that's one of the most, the most beautiful things we usually comment upon the fact that it, you know, it's historical and so on and so forth. But I think we forget the fact that it's the people of history who are confessing it. So in other words, you know, uh, both, you know, rich and poor, young and old, um, you know, across all places and across time, you know, we have, um, you know, we have the opportunity to make this confession together, which is really, I mean, what is this woman's anointing of Jesus? If I might stretch it so this far, it's a visual creed. I mean, it's a simple one, but it's a visual creed. Yeah. And uh, and so we have, you know, we indeed do have the privilege. And this is what uh, what Jesus, uh, you know, commends her for, um, that uh, that we would basically acknowledge what he first tells us. And then we say it back to him. Now, our text ends with Judas, Judas Iscariot. We've got about six minutes here on the morning. I want to make sure we touch on these last two verses. Sure. And it does provide, I think, a bit of a bookend to where we started. The text started with opposition to Jesus. It's going to end with opposition to Jesus. And it comes from within, within his own. Take us into these last two verses of the text. Right. So um, he, he, he was one of the 12. He was one of Jesus's own. And so I think that's the first thing that really strikes me that uh, Judas is, um, you know, he's part of Jesus's chosen uh, chosen troop um, that, you know, this isn't exactly an encouraging thought, but it uh, it does make you realize that uh, the even just being with Jesus does not. Uh, inoculate them from uh, from going astray, and uh, so it's it's indeed a uh, you know a sad thing that that Judas himself becomes part of that opposition, uh, that opposition uh, for Jesus. Now there is, if I'm not mistaken, um, give me a second here and let me check my Greek because I I didn't I didn't look at this in particular, but if I'm not mistaken, yeah yeah it is um, the word for um, betray is also kind of the same word that end up ends up getting used as you know to be handed over, and it's it got this really strong kind of sacrificial um, connotation to it. Where uh, you know, so Judas is going to betray him, but ultimately the uh, you know the end of this would be not merely a, you know he's not just going to be a political casualty, but he's going to become a sacrifice. Judas is going to ultimately betray him as a sacrifice um now of course it's not to be saying that you know this it, the father's hand isn't also involved in this too but um yeah so what what else did i what else did i miss here well i mean there's you know there's there's plenty of things we could say it is you know mark leaves it pretty and this is typical of mark he's he's pretty brief when it comes to it he just lays the the facts in front of us that he goes judas goes to the chief priest to betray jesus to them they're happy about this cuz it's going to provide right. them an opportunity to do it 
quietly. That was what they they wanted at the beginning of the text. They give him money. I think you know. I mean, there's a there's a bit of a juxtaposition between the the money that that <laughs> right. paid to Judas and then what's just been spent to confess the truth. And and it's it's quite something that the the money that is that this ointment was worth is worth far more than Judas gets paid. The, I mean, it's just a, a, a staggering difference, really. Right. And, and you know, we do know that Judas was the treasurer, and, and that's mm-hmm. perhaps part of what's going on, at least from an earthly right. perspective. But the fact that Mark doesn't really give us a reason, he just lays it out there, I think highlights the, the tragedy of it. You know, Oh, Judas, why? Why did you do it? And there's again, we can assign reasons, but but ultimately, there's just the the irrationality of of unbelief. I think he brings that to the fore. Mark does. We got about three minutes here on the morning, Pastor Johnson. Yeah. Anything more on Judas and, and help us wrap this up? Give us the goods from, well, from I mean, the text. I, I hate to do this, but I almost want to ask a question. Um, you know, we're, all, we're supposed to have all the answers to this, right? That's what pastors do, something like that. <laughs> but I, what I've often wondered, though, is that this is kind of juxtaposed with you know, it wasn't that much earlier that the uh, James and John came to Jesus asking for the right and left hand, and they didn't know what they were doing either. You know, I've always wondered, you know, what's the what's the real difference between, you know, their unfaithful response and Judas's unfaithful response? Or, you know, probably the more common one, of course, is Peter's unfaithful response as he uh, as he denies Jesus. But uh, but that gets a little bit more. um that gets a little bit more, more playtime. I mean, is it, you know, you, you kind of have to, it kind of makes you wonder, uh, you know, if Judas had come to his senses and hadn't gone out and hanged himself, um, would, uh, would they ever have to have, uh, you know, would Jesus have just forgiven? I mean, I think I know the answer to this question. Would Jesus have, have uh, just forgiven him the same way as he did Peter? I mean, it's, uh, I almost wonder sometimes with the contrast between Judas and the other disciples that um, it it only illustrates uh, to us um, that uh, there is no betrayal that is so great that can't be forgiven. Uh, but the uh, but what we what we cannot do though is take ourselves out of a place you know where we think the Lord would refuse us forgiveness. But that's a uh, I suppose that's a conversation for another day. I'm probably stealing somebody else's thunder here. Well, I, I do think it highlights something that we talked about earlier, which is that as as this text progresses beyond today's, you, you will see all the disciples ultimately fall away from Jesus until who do you see? It is it is Jesus on the cross for you. And it's at that moment where the centurion of all people, he confesses right. truly this is the son of God. And, and that's the point that, that Jesus goes as the son of God to die, to rise for sinners, for, for the chief priests and the scribes, for Judas, for the rest, for this woman, for you, for me, for all. And I think, I mean, that, that all, all comes together there. Pastor Jeremiah Johnson is the pastor at glory of Christ Lutheran church in Plymouth, Minnesota, helping us today with Mark chapter 14 verses one through 11. Pastor Johnson, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron. Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Mark chapter 14 or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.